As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Welcome back. It's Justin Briley here with the show brought to you by Premier Unbelievable. We're dedicated to helping sceptics to explore faith and Christians to understand, defend and share their faith with confidence. And that's what the C.S. Lewis Podcast aims to help you do in a variety of ways. Today, we need to talk about Susan. This is part two of my conversation with David Marshall. Now, do you remember this line from The Last Battle? My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Well, Philip Pullman and J.K. Rowling have both criticised the way C.S. Lewis treats Susan at the end of Narnia. Author David Marshall, of course, uh, defends Lewis's decision not to have Susan enter heaven in his new book, The Case for Aslan, Evidence for Jesus in the Land of Narnia. In fact, he writes his own imagined next steps for Susan in the real world. Well, we're going to be talking about that today. So uh, that's our conversation coming up in a moment. Just want to remind you about an important live event coming up from Premier Unbelievable soon on Tuesday the 13th of September, Falling from Grace, addressing power, leadership and abuse in the church. We're going to be looking at the series of leadership scandals that have rocked the church in recent years, celebrity pastors with large platforms who have fallen, leaving a trail of abuse survivors in their wake. I've got an important panel coming for this particular webinar. Amy Orr Ewing, formerly of Arzim, Rachel Den Hollander, one of Larry Nasser's victims, now an advocate for abuse survivors, Mike Cosper, presenter of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, and Diane Langberg, church trauma specialist. It's an important subject, the lessons for the church to learn and how to transform our approach going forward. You can be part of a live online audience. Ask your questions on Tuesday, the 13th of September. It's free to attend from anywhere in the world. You just need to register at unbelievable.live. The link is with today's show. Hope you can be with us for that one. For now, let's leap back into The Case for Aslan with David Marshall. Hello and welcome back to the show. Uh, I'm talking on the C.S. Lewis podcast at the moment with David Marshall. He's the author of The Case for Aslan, Evidence for Jesus in the Land of Narnia. David is an apologist himself, really, by background, though his experience has taken him all over the world. He spent a lot of time in Asia as a missionary teaching, um, and he draws all of that experience, actually, into the book. Um, I, I love the book because it obviously doesn't just focus on Narnia. It, it focuses on other aspects of Lewis's work. You bring in other authors too, uh, J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, um, but also Philip Pullman and, and J.K. Rowling, other well-known children's fantasy writers who um, have their similarities and dissimilarities with Lewis's writing. Um, one of one of the characters over the years who's who's caused some controversy when it comes to, to Narnia is Susan, of course, David. Um, Susan, obviously, 
you know, well known from the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and subsequently Prince Caspian and so on. But um, but effectively, she sort of gets she gets sort of written out of the story effectively uh, by the last battle, because while the other children from the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Lucy, Edmund and Peter arrive at Aslan's country and so on, it turns out that Susan isn't with them. Can you kind of give us the background to that? What, what happened to Susan and why, why it's caused controversy over the years? Well, she basically, according to the, the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Susan basically lost interest in Narnia. She grew up, as one person put it, and uh, another one of the friends of Narnia, as they called themselves, the children who went into Narnia at different points in the, in the history of the, the land, uh, said uh, she hadn't grown up enough. There's a little bit of a debate about that in the, the final book of the series, The Last Battle. Um, the point at issue seemed to be that Susan lost her interest in pretend worlds and Aslan, and she became more interested in, well, let me put it the way that J.K. Rowling interpreted the story. There comes a point when Susan, who was the older girl, is lost to Narnia because she becomes interested in lipstick. She's become irreligious basically because she found sex. And Rowling added, I have a, I have a real a big, problem with that. Big yeah, problem yeah. with that. Yeah. I, then, I, oh. if, I, if I could read the actual passage as well from, from The Last Battle, um, Peter says, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. And Eustace says, yes. And whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. And Jill says, oh, Susan, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She's always was a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. And Lady Polly says, grown up indeed. I wish she would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. <laughs> and as you say, J.K. Rowling has, you know, has sort of said, well, is Lewis being fair to Susan and to teenage girls generally? Teenage girls do grow up and they do become interested in in lipstick and magazines and boys. Um, is I mean, and a lot of people have said this is this is kind of Lewis not understanding women or being even a bit misogynistic. So what, what, what do you think is going on, David? Well, J.K. Rowling was actually rather kind to Lewis by comparison to Philip Pullman. And mm. I think this is all very interesting because when I was living in Oxford, I, I did my PhD at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies. I stayed at the Commonwealth House next, next to, uh, uh, what's the name of the church there? St. Aldate. The biggest church. St. Aldate, did, yes. Did, did you know my, my Uncle Michael by any chance? I did know your Michael. Your, I did know your, yes. I love them. Yes. They're, they're wonderful yeah. people. Yeah, wonderful. Michael and Celia, yes, wonderful people. Yes, I'm no longer so involved in running it, but but still very much, uh, yeah. Lots of lots of overseas students I know uh, have a great deal of affection for them. Across the alleyway, they were pre preparing to build a museum. I don't know if they ever did or not. A museum of story. Oh right, so okay. I, I don't know if that was the exact title. Of I don't the, know the name of the museum, right. but, but it was yeah. a. I thought it was a wonderful idea to build mm. a, a museum of, for stories in in Oxford of all places, where mm. there have been so many mm. wonderful stories that have taken place, and Philip Pullman's stories about a girl named Lyra traveling to another world uh, also begin in Oxford, although it's slightly reshaped for his uh, alternative universe. And of course, some of the filming of the Hogwarts, uh, of Hogwarts and other places in uh, J.K. Rowling's uh, Harry Potter series mm, also takes mm. place in Oxford. And, mm. and then you have 
most classic, the more, more, more classic tales of Alice in Wonderland also begins yes. in Oxford. Um, yeah. So I, I love, and this is something that I, I would insist on. I, let me read the quote first of all. From I'm, I'm, I'm jumping from one thing to another, but I'll, I'll fine. draw the threads together in a second. Philip Pullman says, Narnia is one of the most ugly and poisonous things I've ever read. Life-hating philosophy. He, he talks about the supernaturalism, the reactionary sneering, the misogyny, the racism, and the sheer dishonesty of Lewis's narrative method. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking in large part about, about Susan. And mm-hmm. this is what he says about Susan, the fate of Susan. Susan, like Cinderella, is undergoing a transition from one phase of her life to another. Lewis didn't approve of that. He didn't like women in general or sexuality at all, at least in that stage of his life. Um, now, obviously, Pullman's attack on Lewis is rather over the top, and J.K. Rowling's is much more understanding and much more gen- gentle. Uh, Lewis, I think Pullman was reacting to something deeper than just the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia. I think he was reacting to the gospel itself, which he uh, detested, but he mm. detested the Chronicles of Narnia in particular. However, in both cases, I think it's really rather, rather odd how, first of all, they're overlooking a lot of things in the story. And they're projecting things into the story that are not actually there. And they're also not listening what C- to what C.S. Lewis himself said about this story, which, which I think is very, very interesting. Hey, first of all, with J.K. Rowling, there comes a point when Susan is lost to Narnia because she becomes interested in lipstick. She becomes irreligious basically because she's found sex. Now, lipstick is actually not exactly the same thing as sex, and it's much different from finding a lover Mm -hmm. susan lewis doesn't say that 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 susan found a boy okay she didn't find a boy she didn't find love true true love she didn't really even just find sex she found things that were kind of symbols of sex symbols of hedonism of they're, they're focused not so much on the other but on the self lipstick and stockings and dates so Lewis is not actually talking about sex so much. And if you, if you look at his stories, Pullman was completely wrong about that. Mm. Uh, Lewis is not afraid of sex. In fact, he talked mm-hmm. about it very freely uh, mm-hmm. with other people. And he wasn't embarrassed about it in the slightest. But he was writing for small children mm-hmm. with the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, I would say he was writing for small children, but he's also writing for adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis's writing, especially the Chronicles of Narnia, reminds me a little bit of the book of Genesis and the Gospel of John because it is so simple and yet so profound. Mm. Uh, when I was teaching literature, I sometimes like to begin with my Chinese students. I'd like to begin with the, with the book of Genesis because the language is so simple, easy to read, and the ideas were so profound. Well, the Chronicles of Narnia is a little bit like that too. Very simple, but very profound. Now, Lewis has to be simple, and he can't be talking, he doesn't want to talk about the details of you know, sexuality with, with small children. There's something kind of strange about Pullman's work where you have a child of 12 or 13 years old who's really having these very intimate relationships with a, with a boy about her same age. It's a little bit, a little bit unhealthy, I think. Mm-hmm. And some people talk about a, um, a success sequence where young people, in order to be successful in life, they have to fo- follow a certain sequence, a pattern of, mm-hmm. of life in order to do well in life in order to make money, in order to be happy, in order to be to not ruin themselves, basically. And one of the problems in both 
Britain and in America and around the world is people are following out of that success sequence and becoming interested in becoming sexualized at too young an age. Lewis mm. was careful not to do that. He didn't sexualize children. And I think Pullman runs the risk at times of stepping over that line. Of, of going in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's an interesting one um, to, to draw out. I mean, I, I guess Pullman's overall problem is, is the idea that he sort of wants to freeze children in a kind of state of, you know, childish innocence or something. And, and, and in a way, it is the fact that those three children so the, the idea is that in the in their world there's been a train crash and they've they've all died um the Pevensey mm -hmm. children apart from Susan who wasn't on the train and they've all come then to Aslan's country and it's sort of the you know it's it's going into heaven it's it's being part of Aslan's kingdom and so on but Susan's not with them and there's a sense in which you know it, it's almost like the criticism seems to me that it's it's oh you have to kind of have not grown up you have to have sort of remained a child essentially you're not allowed to become an adult in order to uh, if, if if you want to, you know, be with Jesus um, and you, you can't do, you know, and Susan represents this kind of growing into, you know, the, the, the things that the adulthood brings, sexuality, um, love, right. relationships and so on. I mean, what you point out, of course, Snogging is that, as, as, uh, yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah. as J.K. Rowling puts it in Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. And Harry Potter does, you know, grow up and start to, you know, have girlfriends and all the rest of it. So in a sense, J.K. Rowling is kind of did see her characters grow into into maturity whereas you do get a sense with the Pevensies that they you know apart from susan that they they kind of stop at that point they are children forever in in narnia in a sense is it wrong for lewis to kind of as it were have that focus on on ch children you know do, or, or is that a false dichotomy that that P pullman is is drawing there between the the adult susan and the the, the forever sort of young children of of the others well, there's a few points that should be made. First of all, there is love and marriage in the Chronicles of Narnia on a very adenine level. Uh, secondly, for a, a level that Lewis obviously felt was fit for very young children. Uh, secondly, in, in, a, in a sense, I would almost throw the charge back at J.K. Rowling. I love her work. I love Harry mm. Potter. But, you mm. know, I'm, I'm full in on that. I, I, I encourage my students to read Harry Potter, and I encourage my, reader, my students even to read Jake, uh, Philip Pullman. Mm. But... The characters in in uh, in uh, Harry Potter are kind of black and white. Mm. Um, you're either on the side of right, the, the good guys, on the side of the bad guys, and none of the heroes in, in a more realistic adult work. There's a, a little bit more of a, a moral challenge, and and mm. it is possible to fall. Mm. Uh, so Lewis takes the fall very seriously, even in children's stories. It is possible mm. to go the wrong direction, and I think mm. from Lewis's point of view, that's a positive thing. Uh, in, in that in that sense, you could even say the Chronicles of Narnia are more mature than some of the works that they're compared to. Mm. And finally, very importantly, uh, sometimes people wrote Lewis about this pro the problem of Susan themselves, and 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 Pullman makes a, a point in saying Susan went to hell. Mm. Uh, Lewis didn't actually see it that way. Mm. He said he said that Lewis that Susan needed to be redeemed, but her the story of her redemption would be more of an adult story. Mm. Uh, fit for it, it, her redemption would be more of an adult style. Ah, so is this is this what he was saying to people who were writing to him about Susan? Yes, he was reflecting he, that the story wasn't necessarily over for Susan. And he, and he actually encouraged some of his right some of his correspondents to write that story themselves. Mm. So why don't you write the story of Susan and tell us what happened mm. to her? Well, I took mm. him at his word and I wrote <laughs> the story of Susan. In yeah, the case yeah so explain because you you dedicate nearly a chapter really to. 
to a kind of imagined uh, conversation between Susan and um, the professor, you know, um, uh, C- Professor Kirk, um, who you you kind of yeah. imagine is now maybe a very aged Don in Oxford um, writing, I think, on the historical Jesus. And, and she comes to him with all sorts of questions as an adult. So, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about this imagined conversation that you put between them. Well, of course, I have to cheat a little bit with the timing because uh, you do. <laughs> Kirk, Kirk would be a little bit too old, actually, for cell phones and things like that. But I, I imagine, in you know, kind of a background to my own imagination, uh, I, I imagine that he might have spent some time in the wood between the worlds or somewhere like that. But I don't, I don't talk about that in the, in the, in the book. Sure. Um, so, Susan, you know, it's the worst day of her life. Her parents, her, her brother two brothers and her sister, they all die in a, in a train crash. Of course, the politicians are pointing fingers, uh, but who does she point finger? Who's, who does she blame for this tragic event in her life, which just totally destroys her. Now, up to this point, she might have been kind of frivolous. She might have been kind of shallow in some ways. And that was really the sin that Lewis was, was getting at, because Lewis is, I call Lewis the goat of temptation stories. I don't know if you use that term goat. In, <laughs> yeah, in the, the greatest of all time. The yeah. greatest of all time, yes. And uh, all of his writings, he's, he's very good at, at bringing out the psychological implications of, of temptation. So Susan, she's gone through this horrible experience. And, and I, I imagine that uh, she kind of tried to hide from it for a while. Maybe she lived, lived wildly for a while, and maybe she just tried to get away from it. She, she hated, hated the emperor beyond the sea. He hated God. Hated, hated Christ. He didn't want to have anything to do with it after that for several years, I imagine. But then after a while, she begins to want to understand, you know, am I totally crazy? Could this mm-hmm. is possible that anything like this could have happened? And so she goes to see the one person that she believes might have some answers. And it turns out that Diggory Kirk did not die in the train accident like everyone else. She goes to see him at Wadham College and knocks on his door she he's amazed to see her and delighted to see her and they have a conversation not so much about their experiences in narnia but about the possibility that aslan can actually be known in this world by another name mm. and the possibility that aslan by another name is not a figment of someone's imagination but is is real yeah and and you do a great job of then sketching out you know in this conversation this imagined conversation between susan and and the professor, you know, about her own skepticism around the person of Jesus. And you relate it in all kinds of ways to, the, the, you know, the lion Aslan. Um, and that's kind of, this is your area. You know, you've done a great deal of work in historical Jesus studies and that sort of thing. And, and inevitably, these are, these are important questions for a lot of people who are, who are on that journey. Um, well, it's also fun. It's also fun to, you know, think about yeah. what Susan might have become like, become. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, Lewis himself. I mean, also, extent- also, also, I don't yeah, know if you ahead. noticed this, Justin, but uh, yeah. in the background, uh, in the on the uh, in the office wall, there is a, a drawing, and and that's uh-huh. a, a real a real drawing, which I, I, I really like by uh, a person who actually is a don at at Wadham College, named Alan Chapman. Yeah. I believe you've interviewed him before. That's right. Yes, I have. I have. He's, he's a wonderful professor of the history of science, isn't he? Um, yeah, well, um, there's lots of fun little Easter eggs in the book and, and lots of things for the real Lewis nerds, you know, that they'll, they'll delight at. Um, Lewis himself, I mean, to what extent did he enter these debates about the historicity of the Gospels and that sort of thing? You, you do talk about the fact that 
people often don't give him due credit for just how much he was in a sense he knew literature back to front and he could smell you know the made up from the genuine and and that that should be taken into account when it comes to to his own awareness of these issues Yes, um, because Lewis was a popularizer on one level, and he was also an academic on another level, and because he, his writing was so lucid and so simple, some, sometimes people uh, underestimate him. And there are a couple of works uh, in particular in the Chronicles of Narnia, of course, is the famous uh, Lord, Liar, or Lunatic, mm. uh, Trilemma, as it's called elsewhere, uh, when uh, the little girl... Lucy goes into Narnia and, and then her brothers and sisters go and brother and sister go and visit Professor Kirk. And I said, is this really possible? I don't really believe that she'd become a liar. What's happened to Lucy? What's the matter with her? How come she's talking about this other world called Narnia? And then the professor says, oh, well, there's only really three possibilities. Either she's lying and you know she doesn't tell lies or she's crazy and it's obviously she's not crazy or maybe she's telling the truth. And the other children say, well, what are we going to do? And Professor Kirk says, why don't we try minding our own business? <laughs> well, that trilemma is also used by Lewis in his uh, apologetic works. And he says, well, who is Jesus Christ? Is he telling the truth about himself? Is he really the son of God? Maybe he's lying. Maybe he's a lunatic. Or maybe he's Lord. There's only these three possibilities. Now, Dawkins mocks this as well, as, as do a lot of other people. They say, well, what about the fourth possibility? Well, maybe he's a legend. Mm -hmm. Maybe the stories about Jesus in the Gospels are partly made up or they're transmitted. Uh, Chinese whispers from one generation to another until finally you get something, uh, an account, several accounts of Jesus' life that do not resemble the actual historical events at all. Uh, that is... That is kind of the take that many people have on, on Lewis's trilemma argument, but they, they often overlook another uh, essay that he wrote, which I mentioned in the earlier episode, and that is called Fernseed and Elephants. And Fernseed and Elephants, Lewis sets out his arguments against uh, the popular anti-Christian arguments of his day, mm. uh, the people like uh, Rudolf Boltmann and other scholars who thought that the Gospels were basically uh, myths of different kind or fictional writings of different kind. And Lewis gave his reasons for not believe, for thinking that was not the case. And uh, Lewis's ideas about that is his, he, he bases it partly on his own experience of, as, a, as a reader. And Lewis was a very, even from youth, when he was 16 years old, already his tutor wrote and said, this, this man, this, this young man is extraordinary in his ability to expound his own opinion about liter about literature and and uh, the maturity of his his views are, are really amazing um down through throughout his career lewis made people take seriously take his opinion about literature seriously and i think it's something he you know some people said he was the one of the greatest literary mm -hmm. scholars of, of, of his day i think he, it needs to be taken very very seriously what he thinks so part of it is an argument from authority this is what i've seen this is what i've seen you know, myth mythology is like, and that's not at all like, this is not at all like the Gospels. The Gospels are not like that. But mm. in a sense, of course, in the Chronicles of Narnia, we're, we're playing with a few different levels here. Mm. Because Lewis is writing fiction, obviously. He's writing children's sure. fiction. But within that fiction, it's like a Petri dish, you know? Yeah. 
C.S. Lewis is creating a petri dish in which he does certain experiments, uh, mental experiments, intellectual experiments within that petri dish. Yeah, I, I love the way that you bring this stuff out because I, I mean, ev- many people obviously will think, well, if I've if I've recognised the Christian symbolism in Narnia, you know, Aslan is Jesus, the stone table is the cross, you know, he r- rises again. You know, I've basically understood the Christian message, but actually, there, as you say, there, there's so much more going on under the surface in Narnia. Uh, Lewis is kind of embedding a lot of his own, you know, well-worn, in a sense, apologetic arguments into the imaginative structure of Narnia. And I, I love the way you bring all that to the surface in this book, David. So um, The Case for Aslan is the new book from David Marshall. Uh, I will make sure there's a link to it from today's show. We're going to have one more conversation with David here on the C.S. Lewis podcast next week as well. But for now, thank you very much for joining me. Well, I'll return with part three of my chat with David next time as we pick up the conversation with him on miracles in Narnia and Taiwan. He'll be sharing some of his own experiences as a missionary in East Asia. For more from the show, as ever, you can find it at premierunbelievable.com. Do rate and review us as well on your podcast provider. It helps others to discover the show. And just a reminder, you can find out more about our upcoming webinar on church abuse scandals and leaders falling from grace at unbelievable.live. Do join us to be part of that significant live event on Tuesday, the 13th of September. For now, God bless and see you next time. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.